May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable. In your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. No, I've never been political in my sermons. I don't think anybody can accuse me of that. But today, I find it almost impossible not to be political. And it's not because of what's happening on Tuesday. It's because in our Gospel reading, Jesus makes a political statement. When He says to the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Because kingdom of God was a political phrase in first century Judaism. First century Jews were looking for political change and they wanted God to institute His kingdom and intervene on their behalf. Kingdom of God for first century Jews meant regime change. Rome would no longer be in charge. God would be in charge. God would free their nation from their enemies and establish order and justice in the world, and God would give them prosperity under the rule, the reign of His King, the Messiah. Justice, peace, prosperity. That's what they were looking for. That's what this phrase, kingdom of God, would conjure up to them. Sound familiar? These are the things that are promised by our politicians. Justice, peace, prosperity. And they wondered something that we wonder. What's taking God so long? Where is God? Why isn't God intervening on our behalf? Why the injustice? Why the waiting? And one of the answers they come up with, they came up with was, we have not been faithful to God. We have not followed God's law faithfully, and therefore God is punishing us. And they thought, perhaps if we prove ourselves faithful to God's commands and keep His commands, He will then intervene. And the Messiah will come. And the kingdom will come. God's kingdom. A political kingdom. A national kingdom. And so the religious rulers debated among themselves, well, what does it mean to keep the law of God? We're in this situation because we have not been faithful to the law of God. So what does it mean to keep the commandments of God? And they debated among themselves, what is the greatest commandment? You see. And they put that question to Jesus, who is gaining status and popularity with the Jewish populace. It was something they frequently debated. What is the greatest commandment? And by that, they didn't mean which one must we really keep and ignore the lesser commandments. When they said greatest commandment, they said they were talking about what is the foundational commandment upon which all the other commandments depend? What is the essence of the law of God? What is its foundation? Now I'm going to get back to the question or the issue of what this passage might have to say to us as we think about politics and what will be happening on Tuesday. But I just want to take some time to look at how Jesus answers this question first. Jesus answered this question with a prayer that he would have learned as a little boy. It's a central prayer of Judaism. 
It's a prayer and it's a confession. This is something that observant Jews say today, morning and evening. And they teach this to their children to say before bedtime. Hear, O Israel, begins, the Lord our God is one God. This is a quote from Deuteronomy we read just a moment ago. The great commandment begins then with a command to listen up, to hear. In Hebrew, the word is Shema. So this prayer is called Shema, Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel. Now, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who was recently the chief rabbi in the UK, he writes that this word Shema cannot be captured by one word in English. It has multiple meanings and overlapping meanings in the Hebrew Bible. And he says Shema, this command is central to Judaism because Judaism is not a religion of the eye. It's a religion of the ear. God is invisible, so to know God, we must hear God. We must listen for God's word. And he says, Rabbi Sachs says, listening is a prelude to loving. You can't love somebody you don't know, and you can't know somebody unless you listen. And so the command to love God begins to, with this command to hear, to be attentive to, to engage, to, to listen attentively to God, to seek to understand what God is saying. It's all captured by this word, Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. There is the confession of who this God is, the identity of God. He is not just an abstract God. He is the God of Israel, the God who has acted in the history of the people of Israel to save them. It's not a vague God, not the force, but the God of Israel who has acted in time and space to save them. Of course, they look back to the Exodus event as the great act in history of God's salvation. He is the one God, the true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. So that's a preface to the commandment, a command to listen to God, a confession about who this God is. And then Jesus gives the greatest commandment after this preface. Again, this is something that he would have learned as a little Jewish boy reciting this prayer. We're reminded here of the Jewishness of Jesus, which is an important reminder in light of the rising anti-Semitic culture that we're seeing in some places and the event, the tragic and terrible event that happened last week. We're reminded of the Jewishness of Jesus. He's quoting Moses here. And he says the greatest commandment is to love God with all that we are. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now, the heart in the Bible is the whole of the inner life. It is the inner life. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. And in the heart are our thoughts, our desires, our emotions, our wills, our feelings, all of this emanates from the center of the self, the inner life. And so it is in our hearts that we love God, or it's in our hearts that we can hate God. 
Our hearts can be hardened towards God, or our hearts can be soft towards God. It's there that we decide for or against God. It's the inner self. God sees it. But man looks on the outward appearance. God sees our hearts. We're called to love him, the very center of the self. And then it says, love the Lord your God with all your soul. Now, it's kind of hard to untangle heart and soul in the Bible. If you do a word study, you'll see that sometimes these words are used interchangeably and they kind of share similar concepts. But there's something a little distinctive, I think, about soul in the Bible, particularly in the Hebrew Bible. Soul is life. To have soul is to have life. It's the seed of the life. And life is about energy and power and movement. It's dynamic. And so the Lord calls us to love him with our life that motivates us to act. Motivates us to act for him. So the Apostle Paul is a great example of somebody who sought to love God with all of his soul, with his energy, with his effort. He focused on pursuing the will of God for his life. So he says something like this in Philippians. um, He says, this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal. He's energized to follow the will of God for his life. And then in Colossians 1.29, right after he says, this is the reason I came, to preach Christ, to proclaim Christ. He says, this one thing I do, Proclaiming Christ. He says, um, I labor with all of Christ's energy, which is powerfully working in me. Laboring, struggling, giving his soul to God. So to love Christ with all of our soul is to be energized, empowered by the love of God that moves us to action. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and then with all of your mind. It's not enough to be active for God. God wants us to understand him as much as we can. We're called to understand what we believe as Christians and why we believe it. We should be able to think through the issues of the day, political issues as well, from a distinctly Christian perspective, from an imagination that's been shaped and formed by Scripture and worship of God. We're called to love the Lord our God with all of our minds. Contrary to popular belief, the God of the Bible does not call us to check our mind at the door of the church when we come in. God wants us to engage our minds. John Stott, the great Anglican pastor, said, if we do not use the mind that God has given to us, we condemn ourselves to spiritual superficiality. God wants us to be deep. And the world needs deep Christians who can think through the issues of the day and love God with their mind. This is a call for all of us. All of our strength, he says. Love the Lord your God with all of your strength. And that means your resources, your your physical resources, your material resources. We're to love God with all that we are. So that's the greatest commandment. That is the foundational commandment. Everything else is based on this starting place. Loving God with all that we are. And then Jesus says, love our neighbors as ourselves. We're to love our neighbors who 
are made in the image and likeness of the God that we love. Why do we love our neighbors? Because they're made in the image and likeness of the God that we love. All of our neighbors are made in the image and likeness of God. So we can't define who our neighbor is. Jesus reinforced this in the story of the Good Samaritan, didn't he? You can't define, you can't circumscribe who the neighbor is. Because it was the Good Samaritan in Jesus' remarkable story, it was the Good Samaritan who turned out to be the good neighbor who fulfilled this law. He is the one who helped the, the Jewish man who was in the ditch. He loved his neighbor. So we cannot draw boundaries around the neighbor. The Good Samaritan teaches us that the neighbor is the person we see who is in need, person who's in the ditch that we come across. And every one of our neighbors is made in the image and likeness of God. So therefore, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, unfortunately, in our culture, we have detached love from God. And we have detached ethics from God. And so in our culture, we, do not, we don't take the definition of what is good and right from God. We take it from what makes us feel right or what feels good. Not everybody does this, but I think this is a prevailing idea. If it feels good, do it. We define for ourselves what is good. There's no standard outside of the self. And so that's why we have so much confusion and moral chaos today, I believe because there's no transcendent standard for goodness or righteousness. But in this cultural context, to love the neighbor for some people simply means to affirm whatever they feel is right and good. No longer is it a matter of truth, but of taste. There's no higher standard for what is good. We're each left to our own to determine that. But Christians are to take our understanding of what is good from God, and that means that we can't affirm the idea that whatever feels good is right. And that means that sometimes in the name of love we have to speak up for the truth of God. And sometimes we have to point to what God's law says is the standard of righteousness. And what is good, what is best for human flourishing. And that puts us in tension with the prevailing culture. There's no doubt about that. But even though we might disagree with people on these sorts of things, we might disagree with our neighbors, we are still called to love them. We, are, we can disagree in loving ways. We must affirm the dignity and worth of every person, no matter where they're at on the issues. We're called to help them in the time of their need. Luther said it like this. He said, we are God's mask in the world. We are God's representatives in the world and when we love and serve our neighbors we are representing a God of love so in our workplaces in our neighborhoods in our families in the church when we love and serve one another we are representing something of the goodness and the love of God this is what we're called to do this is what God demands of us that's what the great commandment and the one that is like it is about it is God's command this is our duty. Now, there's a reason that we say something after we recite the great commandment every Sunday. What do we say? Lord, have mercy. 
Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Why do we say that? Because we do not fulfill this command perfectly. None of us, if we're honest with ourselves, has loved the Lord God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not fulfilled this law. And this is the greatest law. This is the essence of the law. We've not fulfilled it. If you want to be righteous according to the law, you have to be righteous all of the time. You've got to get a 100% on this test. There's no grading on the curve here. 99.9% won't do it. You have to get a perfect score. And none of us have done that. There's only one who has. Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled this law perfectly. He fulfilled this law perfectly for us and for his nation, the nation of Israel. God calls us to strive by his grace to obey this law, but we can't do it perfectly. We're to strive for it. But the law cannot save us. The law gives us a guide, but it cannot save us. You know, there are some people today, I heard this just recently, that there are some versions of Christianity that are saying the gospel is the great commandment. People are asked in some circles today, what does the gospel mean? And some people define it as love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's not the gospel. That's the law. That's the demand that God places on us that none of us can keep perfectly. God has given it to us as a guide, but we all fall short. That's not good news. If that's how we're saved, that's not good news for any of us. The gospel is Jesus has done this for us. It is his life, his death, and his resurrection that saves us. Now notice the exchange that happens at the end of this, towards the end of this passage between the scribe and Jesus. The scribe says, good answer, teacher. And he summarizes what Jesus says. And then he says something very significant, again, thinking in first century Jewish context. Look at verse 33 at the end. He says, this, this fulfillment of the great commandment, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This was a key to Jewish religion, obviously was the sacrificial system. This is how we're made right with God. And the scribe is saying, there's something more important than even that. It is fulfilling this law. And Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But Jesus is going to redefine what kingdom of God means. Jesus is getting ready to lay down his life as the perfect sacrifice for sin, which means those whole burnt offerings and sacrifices will no longer be necessary. And it means the temple in Jerusalem, which was the center of Jewish identity, nationhood, religious identity, all bound up with the temple and the sacrifice. Soon that will be rendered obsolete because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's a fulfillment of the promise of Israel that Jesus is embarking on here as he gives his life for the sins of Israel and for the sins of the whole world. So God's kingdom is not going to be just about one nation, but God's kingdom is going to be 
encompassing all nations. It's going to come not through an earthly kingdom, but through the sacrifice of love on the cross and the victory of love on Easter morn. So he is redefining the kingdom of God and he is fulfilling the promise of Israel for the entire world. Let me come back to this question. How might this help us think about politics today? First century Jews were looking for a political solution to their problem, understandably so. They were an oppressed people. For them, the kingdom of God meant a political kingdom. It meant vindication over their enemies, but Jesus had a different way. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is unleashing a a spiritual kingdom of love. And the kingdom of God is going to be for those who give their life to the one who gave their life for him. Now, God has instituted government to preserve order in society. This is Romans 13. God has given government to institute, or to preserve, rather, order and justice in society. And Paul says in Romans 13 that as Christian citizens, we're to be good citizens of the government that we live in. We are to pay our taxes. I think this would include, if Paul was writing today, he would say, go out and vote, pay your taxes. That's what it means to be, partly what it means to be a good citizen. And we're to pray for the leaders of our government, no matter if we voted for them or not. He says in 1 Timothy 2, I urge that supplication and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for those in high positions. So Christians, we have a role to play in the political realm. We know that elections have consequences. We are to think about politics and the issues of the day from a Christian perspective. This is part of what loving the Lord our God with our mind is about. And there have been Christians who have served in the political realm and have done great good for justice. I'm thinking of William Wilberforce, uh, who was instrumental in abolishing the slave trade in England. He was motivated by his Christian principles to get involved in the political realm. So there's a role for us to play. It's important. But let's not equate politics with salvation. Let us not equate any politician with a Messiah. Let us not think that the renewal of our world or our culture or our family or our institution is going to ultimately come through any political process. As I've said before, and I don't know where I picked this phrase up, but I think it captures it perfectly. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And renewal starts by renewed people. Cultural renewal. Institutional renewal. And that happens as people encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was reminded this week that the word politics comes from the Greek word polis, which means city. And Stanley Harwas, a Christian theologian, he says the church is a city, the church is a polis. Church is an alternative political community, not primarily because of who we vote for, but because of how we live as God's people. 
how we worship together as the people of God, how we love people, no matter where they fall on the issues of the day or where they're at politically, how we show love to people. We're an alternative political community. We are part of the city of God. Yes, we're part of the city of man, but we belong to this eternal community. We remember that today on All Saints Day. I thought about that yesterday as I was with David and Mandy Beck in the hospital. And many of you know that they lost their baby and she was over 30 weeks. And so I went to the hospital yesterday and the family was there and the baby was there, little Lila Ann. And we commended her to the Lord and made the sign of the cross on her. And I thought, this is an act of defiance in the face of death. This is a Christian act. This is something distinctly Christian to do here. To proclaim the resurrection life in the face of tragedy and death. The ballot box doesn't give that to people. The cross and the empty tomb gives that hope to people. So no matter what happens on Tuesday, whether you're in despair or elated, based on the results, remember it all doesn't depend on that. Our ultimate hope is in this message. Our ultimate hope is in the renewal of people who have been changed by the love of God so that they will want to love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbor as themselves. Amen.